Let's, uh, let's continue this morning. If you have your Bibles, grab those. We're going to Judges chapter 8. Um, if you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and grab one of the Bibles on the chairs there, either in front of you or underneath you. And if you're using those cha- uh, Bibles from the chairs, go to page 278. Page 278. Judges chapter 8. We're going to continue our message in the series Cycles, which is a walk through the book of Judges, and we're taking episodes of it. And the last two weeks, we've been looking at a guy named Gideon. And Gideon started out really well. You remember, he did some great things. God used him. But then he was a leader who just went bad. And we saw that toward the end of last week. And we're going to kind of pick up with the tail end of his life today and then see how that's impacted things. But before we jump in, I want to tell you a story. Some of you have heard me share this before because I've shared it from here before. But it, it works here again, too. So you remember, um, for those of you who've heard, I, I used to work for a school district down in Houston. And I worked for their indoor pool, their natatorium, which is where the high school swim teams and, uh, would practice and, and compete and all that. And, and my, my job there was technically called pool technician, but I was more or less a glorified janitor and night manager. And so what I would do is uh, I would come in in the afternoon, and uh, usually for, for the early afternoon, I would fix things. I would tinker with things, clean things, um, see if the pool was balanced well with its chemicals and adjust that if need be. I would have projects that I would work on there. And then in the after, late, late afternoon, early evening, when the rest of the staff would leave, I kind of moved into my night manager role. And that was, we had evening programs, people coming to swim, and I would manage uh, what was going on there, make sure people were only sticking to their lanes and all that. And, and then when they would leave about 8.30, then it was clean the facilities, locker rooms, bathrooms, mop floors, clean up the pool area and all that kind of stuff. We had two pools in that facility. The, the large competition pool was 880,000 gallons of water. And then we had a practice pool, or a warm-up pool, and that was 44,000 gallons of water. Now, one of the things that you do with a pool, uh, on occasion, depending on how much you use it, is you backwash that pool. And the process of backwashing is to reverse the flow of water. See, normally the water goes into the pool, the treated water goes in, but you reverse the flow in the pipe so that you clean uh, the, the filter. And now on a pool of both sides, that could take 15, 20 minutes easy. And so early on, what I would do is I would stand there, and I would backwash the pool, and I would watch the gaze rain watch. I'm looking for clarity of water, and when it got clear enough, then I, I would be done, and I would stay there. But as time got on, I got more confident, and I would, I, would, I would realize that I'm standing in there for 15 or 20 minutes in this room, and I've got locker rooms to clean and floors to mop. I could be doing some of that stuff while the pool's backwashing, and I can come back and catch it. And so I started to do that. Over the course of three years, three times, three times, I forgot to go back and stop the pool from that Three times over that, I, I finished my, my cleaning, the floors are up, the bathrooms are clean, and the trash empty, and now I'm leaving at 9 o'clock, and I'm, I'm ready to get out of there, because at that time in my life, I was a consistent 5 o'clock, 5.30 at the latest morning guy, and from 9 o'clock was my bedtime. And so I was ready to get out of there. So I would hop on my bike, and I would ride it back to the apartment complex, and I would get sleep. Until the next morning, when I was up, and I got a text that said, Hey, did you forget to stop that washing the pool? You see, because what happened was the swim team would come in at 5, 530 practice. And the, the, the pool in the back, the 44,000 gallons, the little woman pool, was empty. And they can't swim in an empty pool. And so now their morning is all thrown off because they don't have their money. And the weight and the pressure and the humility that I felt sometimes is more than I can bear. 
was that when I would come in at 1 o'clock that next afternoon, everyone would know I was the guy. Good for God to stop that from I was the guy who drained it. And, and I did that three different times. Why? Because after the first time, I thought, this ain't never going to happen again. That's some serious money that's going down the feed with that water, right? And so after the first time, what I would do is I'd set my watch. And my timer would go off. And I'd go do something. The timer would go off. Boom, I'm back in there. And the timer would go. I'd reset it. And I would go back in there each time it would go off so I wouldn't forget. Or, or sometimes I would just stay there. It's not worth it. And, you know, I can't run this pool again. But yet as time went on, and as, as the humiliation and the pressure of that, that moment and got further, it's not that I forgot that it happened, but it was no longer real to me. It no longer controlled the way I was operating, and so I went back to efficiency again. And I would do things while I was backwashing. I would forget to set my watch. Or something else would take my attention, and I elevated something else over the backwashing. And so two other times, I drained that pool. All because I forgot all because something else became more important. All because something else was taking my time and my attention. It's not that I, I didn't know how to do it. It's not that I forgot like, how to do it. It's that something else pulled me away and controlled me. My desire for efficiency and to get out by my clock. And you know, that's not really a big deal. Hindsight, I can laugh at it. And yeah, I know it costs a lot of money for the districts, and thankfully they never made me pay that back. But in the big picture, that's not a big deal. We're talking about draining the pool. People probably don't even remember that. But there are other things that we forget that are big deals and have uh, lasting impact. And this morning, we're going to see what is the impact when God's people forget God's faithfulness. What happens to us when we forget? God. And so this morning, as we pick up back in Judges chapter 8, verse 29, we're going to catch the end of Gideon's life here, but here's where we're going. When we forget God's faithfulness, we fail to live faithfulness to God. When we forget God's faithfulness, we fail to live faithfulness for God. So Judges chapter 8 here, we're going to uh, pick up, and here's the first thing that we're going to see happen. When God's people forget we replace God. We replace God. So uh, Gideon's at the end of his life, and, and he's gone home to settle. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 30. Gideon fathered 70 sons. Now, if I stopped there, that would be a really great statement. Because in that time period, that was a really fantastic thing. You wanted at least one son to carry on your name and get the inheritance. But 70 sons, man, your family's going to be around forever. But the sentence wasn't in there. Gideon fathered 70 sons. Through as many wives. We don't know how many, but it takes a few to have 70 sons, I'm going to imagine. Because he's not even mentioning any daughters that he might have had. He just says 70 sons by many wives. Gideon had started to collect many wives. But, but that wasn't enough. Verse 31. And his concubine, that's like the woman on the side, his concubine who lived in Shechem, see, she's in a completely different town, also gave him a son whom he named. You see, what happens when God's people forget God is we start to replace God. And we replace Him with different things. And Gideon, he replaced God by pursuing His pleasure. He replaced God by pursuing His pleasure. See, uh, 
he, he had many wives. Something that God, in his law, the Old Testament law that he had given to Moses, so you can find this in the book of Deuteronomy and, and, and those first five books of the Bible there, but Deuteronomy specifically talks about if you have a king, now Gideon's not a king, we'll come back to that, but if you have a king, he should not multiply or, or collect many wives. He should not have multiple wives. And he should also not have multiple horses. They kind of go together. He said, you should not amass those things for yourself. Don't gather them. But see, Gideon, Gideon collects wives. And wives are not enough. He needs a woman on the side. It's concubine. And so he has all of these wives and his concubines. And all of his sons come from But he was chasing his pleasure. You see, God was no longer enough. He wasn't willing to trust God. He wasn't depend on God. He was stuck replacing God with other things. Now, Gideon was not a king. You might remember from last week, the way it ended was the people came up to Gideon after these victories and said, we want you to be our king. Rule over us. And Gideon says, I will not be your king. The Lord alone will be your king. And that's a good answer. That was a good answer. He messed it up after that by making this ephod. That it was best that the priests would wear that then the Israelites started worshiping. But his answer about the king was good. So Gideon didn't want to be their king. But he named his son Abib. Which means in Hebrew, my father is king. So Gideon gave the right answer outwardly, but he had already started to drift from the Lord by the time he had a benefit. So we start to pursue pleasure, but then we don't we don't stop there. See, when God's people forget God, we also replace them with idols. And so verse 33, after Gideon died, the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. That would be the false gods of that land that that they were going after and they would have statues of. They made Baal Berit their God. Verse 34, the Israelites did not remain true to the Lord their God, who had delivered them from all the enemies who lived around them. They did not treat the family of Jeru Baal, that is, Gideon, fairly, in return for all the good he had done for Israel. When God's people forget God's goodness or his faithfulness to us, we replace God with idols. Now, here's a few things we need to talk about. First off, backtrack and talk about what forgetting means. You see, because forgetting, like my story, doesn't mean I don't know something. Or I I completely wiped my mind clean. See, that's not what forgetting necessarily means. See, that's one component of forgetting. But God's people did not forget what God had done. It's not like they stopped hearing all the stories. And it's not even that they stopped worshiping God altogether. You remember that what's going on with Israel at this time is they're starting to incorporate other gods into their worship with God. And they, they attribute some things to one false god and another false god, and then they maybe have some things that they give to the one true God. It's not that they completely kick God out. It's that they're bringing others alongside. But when they forget, what it means is, it's no longer real to them. God is no longer real to them. The, the, the distant memory of what God has done and how He's acted on their behalf has faded. And it's no longer controlling the way they live. And instead, they replaced them with idols. And so those idols now are controlling the way they live. Now, we all have idols. Now, it may not be like a statue of Buddha. You and I, most of us may probably not come into contact with that kind of thing on a regular basis. You might. But likely that's not what what you're going to experience when it comes to idolatry in your life. Instead, here's what idolatry is at its bottom. Idolatry is when we submit our life to something else. 
so that I'm living the way that something else tells me, instructs me that I should live in order to get what I want. And so I start to shape my life around whatever that is. I start to bend everything around it, my schedule, my, my passions, my desires, my money. All of that starts to shape around that thing, doing what it demands of me in hopes that if I do what it demands of me, then I will get whatever it is I'm hoping to get from it. And so idols today, for us, is things like money. It's things like success. It's things like, I want to be the best mom. I want to be the best dad. I want my kids. I want my kids to be my friends when they get older. So my kids become my idols in the way I treat them. My grandkids. I want my grandkids to think I'm the coolest. And so, you know, I'm going to treat them certain ways and do whatever they want. And so my life is shaped around that. It, it, could be, it could be a possession, a car. It could be a relationship you're trying to chase at that moment. It could be something that you want that you've got your eyes set on. Something that would otherwise be good. See, a lot of times the things that become idols for us are things that are otherwise good. They're not bad things in themselves. Money's not bad. The love of money is bad. But money is not bad. The job is not bad. You want to eat, you better work. Right? I mean, there, there's things that we have in our lives that are good, but what happens is we make those good things that God has given us, and they're meant to point us to Him, and instead we stop there. And we enjoy those things more than those things we're ever meant to enjoy. And we make those things begin. And we shape our lives around those things. And so now I'm changing the way I live in hopes that I get what I want. That's what an idol is at bottom. And we all have idols. When God's people forget God's goodness, when they forget His faithfulness, we replace that with idols. Because you and I were designed to worship. We are created by God to worship. And now we were created to worship God. But if we don't worship God, we were still created to worship until we will find something to worship. Because there's that desire, that need in us to worship. But you and I, when we allow idols in our lives, it's because we're worshiping something other than the God who created us to worship Him. When God's people forget, when we don't actively remember and intentionally recall what God has done, that starts to become different. And we start to let ourselves be controlled by something else or someone. And those things become idols. We replace God with those things. But when God's people forget and they replace God, what starts to happen over time is we then start to select leaders that look like us. We start to select leaders who lack character. And so we're going to get kind of into the meat of our story here in chapter 9. When God's people forget, we select leaders who lack character. Look at Chapter one, uh, or verse one of chapter nine. So, Gideon had the son Abimelech. My father is king. And look what happens with Abimelech. Now, Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to see his mother's relatives. Remember, his mother is the concubine. His mother is Gideon's woman on the side that's in a different city. And so, it, it, it's it's like he's the outside outside. Because I don't know if you have many many wives, how how you're not on the outside. I don't get that. But if you already are on the outside, you're even further on the outside because your mom was the concubine. She wasn't even a wife. Right? So he goes to visit his mom and his relatives. And he says to them and to his mother's entire extended family, verse 2, tell all the leaders of Shechem this. Why would you want to have 70 men, all of Jerubbaal's sons, ruling over you when you can have just one ruler? And recall that I am your flesh and blood. And see, here's what, here's what they want to do. He said, you know what? He goes to his family, his mom's side, and he starts to spread this 
He starts to grasp for power that has not been given to him, which is what leaders that lack faith should do. They start to grasp for power that God has not given to them. And so he starts to manipulate it. He says, look, here's how things are going to go if you don't do something quick. There's 70 sons over there, and all 70 of those sons are going to rule over you. Do you really want to be ruled over by 70 different people? It just doesn't even happen. Not all 70 would like to rule. But worst case scenario, do you want to be ruled over by 70 of them? And they're not even your flesh and blood. But I, I'm your flesh and blood. I'm one person. Let me rule over you. Your family. And so what happens is he's starting to grasp the power that's not his. It's not been given, and he's making his way. See, we don't read anywhere here that God raised up Abimelech. We don't read that God empowered Abimelech. We don't read that. Instead, Abimelech's making his own way. And he starts to grasp the power that's not his. But then he also starts to elevate family, or, or a flesh and blood family, over the family of God. Look at verse 3. So he finished telling this, his mother's relatives spoke on his behalf to all the leaders of Shechem and reported his proposal. The leaders were drawn to Abimelech, and they said, he is our close relative. And so they make their decision based on, he is flesh and blood. And so never mind that this guy is about to disobey God, and he's trying to undermine some, some people who have a legitimate right to rule. Never mind that. We've got to be loyal to flesh and blood. He's our family. That makes sense. And what happens when God's people forget God, and we start to select leaders who lack character, and we don't care what they're doing or how they're doing it, sometimes what we will do is we'll elevate our flesh and blood, our family, over the family of God. And it's not that family's bad. Don't get me wrong. But when your family, your flesh and blood, are being disobedient to God, and they're leading you down that path, and you say, well, I've got to follow them. I'm obligated to help them. I'm obligated to move them into whatever position, because they're my family. We're losing at that point. You see, if we read through Scripture, one thing we find later in the New Testament is that Jesus got there. See, Jesus was traveling, and he finished traveling a full day, had a full day of ministry, he ends up at this house. House is crowded. He hasn't even had a chance to eat yet. It's crowded. He's continuing to teach and minister. His mother and his brothers, his flesh and blood, they show up. Because it was near their place. Shows up. Hey, tell Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside. His, his, his flesh and blood, right? Because what Mark tells us in his account of this, in the end of his testimony, is that they had come to get Jesus because they thought he had gone crazy. They thought he had lost his mind because anyone who had been traveling that long, who would go and continue to do this without eating, he was going crazy. They were embarrassed by him. They were going to yank him out. And so the message gets to Jesus, your flesh and blood, your family's out there. They want you to go visit them. And he looks around at the people sitting and saying, and he says, who are my mother and my brother? It's the people who follow me, he says. He elevates the family of God above flesh and blood. Especially when that flesh and blood is seeking to disobey God and pull them in the direction of Jesus. So when God's people forget God, we start to select leaders who lack character. And it doesn't matter if they're disobedient to God. And if they happen to be our family, sometimes we elevate our flesh and blood. And we obligate ourselves to our flesh and blood over our family of God. We don't need to do that. We go on, verse 4. They paid him 70 silver shekels out of the temple of Baal, believe 
Abimelech then used the silver to hire some really lawless, dangerous men as his followers. And sometimes when God's people uh, forget God, they select leaders who lack character, and it doesn't matter who surrounds them. It doesn't matter. He's got some bad hombres around him, all right? They don't care. And so he's surrounding himself with some, some people. Yes, I know the Spanish on that was, was wrong. I was quoting. All right, verse 5. He went to his father's home in Orpha and murdered his half-brothers, the 70 legitimate sons of Jerubel on one stone, except for one son, Jotham. So sometimes when God's people forget God and they select leaders who lack character, those leaders, they will bull rush. They will bulldoze people who get in their way. doesn't matter who you are, what you are. You get in my way, I'm going to know you. Look what he does. 69 out of the 70 sons he gets, and he kills them all on the same stone, one after the other. Can you imagine what has to be going on in the heart of a person who's willing to bulldoze their way through uh, the people that are getting in their way? In this case, 69 men and young men, he kills them all on the same stone. Next, next. Can you imagine how it, what it takes to get to that point? But sometimes when we forget God, we start to collect leaders who lack character and they just reflect who we are. They go around them. Here's what happens between there and verse 20. So one son gets away, Jotham. Jotham gets to a spot where he's able to be safe and he yells down and he says, Hey, you people of Shechem! Listen up, I'll tell you a story. And he goes to tell the story. He says, there are some trees. And those trees, they wanted a king, they wanted a ruler really bad. And they, were, they went and started looking for a king, someone to rule over them. So they went, they went to the olive branch. And they said to the olive branch, rule over us. Let us take shelter in your shade. And the olive branch said, no. No, see, I'm, I, I'm, I'm good here producing the oil. I don't want to go and wave my branches over a bunch of trees. Okay? So then the trees keep going. They're looking for a leader. They go to the fig tree. Fig tree, rule over us. Spread your branches out over us. Let us take shade in your branches. The fig tree says, you know, this fig thing is really starting to pick up. And the figs are going well, and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing here. I don't want to leave this. They're going spread my branches over some trees. All right, so they keep going. They go to the grapevine now. Grapevine, hey, we want you to rule over us. We want you to spread your branches over us so that so we can take shade underneath you. And the, the grapes, they say, look, I make some wine that's good enough for the gods. I don't want to leave that. They're going to wave my branches over some trees. So then there's this thorn bush, this bramble, which is really good for nothing except catching on fire. And, and the bramble kind of steps up and says, I'll do it. I'll rule over you. Or the, the people say, well, I guess, you know, we're kind of at this point where nobody's saying yes, so, so we'll, we'll talk to you, okay? And they make this deal, basically, and the bramble, the, bramble, the thorn bush decides he's going to rule over them. The people say, that's cool, we're going to rule over, we're going to let the, the, the thorn bush rule over But he has no branches. And here's the point of Jotham's story. It's absolutely ridiculous that you would ask a thorn bush to rule over you. He has no branches to provide shade. He is good for nothing except for catching fire and spreading fire. And so then he closes out his story, verse 20, by saying this. And he brings it home to me. He says, look now. He says, if you've dealt um, uh, good with Abimelech, I mean, if you've, if you've picked Abimelech and you've dealt good with Gideon's family, then Lord bless you as you, you go off in his leadership. But if you have not dealt well with Gideon's family and you're picking Abimelech and your conscience is not good, then may you catch fire. So verse 20, if not, he says, may fire blaze from Abimelech and consume the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. 
May fire also blaze from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Noah and consume Abimelech. And what happens when God's people select leaders who lack character? Is in the end, we get burned. We get burned. But let's go on. Finally, the last thing here in the last part of chapter 9 is God's people, when they forget God, then they start to replace God, they select leaders who lack character, and eventually what happens is we bring judgment on ourselves. We bring judgment on ourselves. And so look with me at verse 23 here. God sent a spirit to stir up hostility between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. He made the leaders of Shechem disloyal to Abimelech. And so what starts to happen is God sends a spirit. This, this spirit starts to stir some things up so that the leaders of Shechem are no longer satisfied with their leader, Abimelech. And it starts to create some turmoil in them. Verse 24, he did this so that violent deaths of Jerubel's 70 sons might be avenged. And Abimelech, their half-brother who murdered them, might have to pay for their spilled blood along with the leaders of Shechem who helped them murdered. We go on to verse 26. So this guy, Gael, shows up. And, and, and God's people now are starting to implode from the inside. They're just crumbling. Because sometimes that's what God's judgment looks like on his people. Is they just crumble from the inside. Not so much the things on the outside that are attacking them. Sometimes it's the things on the inside that are corroding them. And Jesus talked about how it, it, some people look good on the outside. And they look pure. But on the inside, a teacher that corrupts. And so God's people start to implode. And so Gael shows up in town, and the people transfer their, their loyalty to him, verse 26. And then in verse 27, he starts to spread some stuff, and they go and they're, they're eating together, they're sacrificing at temple, and then they curse Abimelech. He's starting to, 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 to build up followers and, and build up resentment, and that resentment's going to crumble them. And verse 28, Gael says this, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem? And we should serve them. He starts to call them into question. And then jump down there to the end of verse 28. But why should we serve Abimelech? He's trying to raise questions among people who need to follow Jesus. He's stirring up division and divisiveness. And you know what? If you've been around any church long enough, you know that the church is not exempt from divisiveness and division. And it's not exempt from people stirring things up. God's people, sometimes the judgment that God brings, you see, God, God will let us experience the consequences of our sin, of our choices. And there are times where you and I make choices, and we're going to experience the consequences that come with that. And sometimes that's how God uses, uh, those are things God uses to bring judgment upon us. But see, the thing is, it's being brought on us by what we're doing, not someone else, not the enemies. And it starts to implode from the inside. But here's what happens. Gael. He, uh, he starts to stir it up. He gets the following. Word gets out to Abimelech. Abimelech decides, I'm going to squash this. Goes down against uh, Gael and, and chases him to the city. And uh, the city who had harbored him and given him safe haven, Abimelech decides that city's got to go too. Anybody who's given the enemy safe haven has got to go. So all these people, that they, they flee into this tower. And they're hiding in this tower. And what happens is, when we select people who lack character and, and we're bringing judgment on ourselves, sometimes what happens is we start to go to extremes to hurt people. Look at verse 49. So each of his men also cut off a branch. So Abimelech tells the guys, hey, they're in the tower. Do what I do. And he goes and grabs some branches. And they're, they're, they're throwing on his shoulder. And they all start to do that. And they put these, these, these bundles down at the bottom of the tower. And they light it on fire. And they burn up this tower. And all the people in the tower of Shechem died. Thousands of men and women. 
same thing happens again another time. Abimelech sees, sees what's going on. They're, they're rebellious. He says, I'm going to do the same thing to them. They, they go and they hide in the tower. And Abimelech says, you know what? It worked last time. We're going to do it again. Gather up some sticks and stuff. They put it at the tower. He goes to light it. But this time, this time there's a woman. This time there's a woman at the top of the tower. She happens to have a household item with her. A millstone. It happens to be a little bigger millstone, something she would use for grinding. She looks out the window. Down there she sees Abimelech. He's about to light the fire. He holds the stone, lines it up, crushes Abimelech's head. That doesn't kill him. Now that's humiliating for him. A warrior, a man, going to be killed by a woman? That doesn't happen. That can't happen. So he says to his servant, Look, come here. Your sword. Kill me. I can't have it said of me. A woman got me. So the servant takes the sword. And then I die. 56 wraps it up for us. God repaid Abimelech for the evil he did to his father by murdering his 70 half brothers. God also repaid the men of Shechem for their evil deeds. The curse spoken by Joshua, the son of Jerusalem. When God's people forget, when we forget God's faithfulness, we fail to live faithfully to God. Now, here's something I want you to know as we now finish that story. You might read that, or you might look at a situation and you see like a church imploding or something like that, and, and you go, where's God? You know, you might be tempted to read the story and go, God wasn't even in that. Oh, but he was. He was at the beginning of it when he sent the Spirit to stir things up. And now at the end we're told it was the justice that was taking place. You see, because sometimes the judgment that we experience at the hands of, of ourselves, that's kind of God's justice. Now look what happens here. You see, if God had not acted, if God had not done something to stir that up, they may have they continued to chase what they were going after. They may have continued down the road and further destroyed themselves. And God has some promises he's got to keep. God is faithful even when His people forget. And so God's judgment here on His people actually preserves His people. Because it took care of the leaders who was leading them down a path of destruction. So God, even in the midst of something where it seems like He's being silent, He's not absent. He's preserving His people. And He's being faithful to keep even when you and I forget, and we're not faithful, when we forget, God's faithfulness is telling you faithfulness to God. So here's the question I ask you. What are you doing? What do you need to do to actively and intentionally remember God's faithfulness for you? You see, it's not enough for us to just say, oh yeah, I remember, because we're just not that good. That's why God left something like this. Communion for us because he knew he's saving the people who were forgetful. And the further we got removed from, from the day of salvation, the further we got removed from the day he redeemed us at the cross, the more we were going to look for other things. And so he gave us something, the Lord's Supper, to remember, to actively engage, intentionally recall what God has done on behalf of his people so that it would continue to stir us up to remind us of the reach that God had to do within us. And so maybe for you, it's something like this. It, it, it may be 
it's something as simple as when you sit down to, to bless your meal at lunch, you take a moment, you thank God for His provision, and you reflect on His provision. My oldest yesterday hands me her plate up to lunch, and she goes, thank you, Daddy, I'm full. And I said, wow, what a blessing. That you're full. Because you got to eat to the point where you're full. Isn't God good? Because not everybody gets to eat to the point where they're full. Take a moment to reflect. Well, and maybe it's tonight when you lay down your head. You take just five minutes and you start thinking through your day. Where did I see God? Where, where, was, where was God at work? What was He trying to teach me this Maybe it's journaling. Maybe you're a journaler and you need to write down things I'm praying for, things I see God at work, and people I need to pray for, people I want to see God work, and situations I want to see God at work. Whatever it is for you, what are you doing to actively and intentionally remember God, maybe it's when you when you hear the gospel presented that, that God sent Jesus to die for sinners and He died in the place of sinners, rose from the dead, and that if you just trust in that, He'll give you life. And then you're thinking, oh, I already checked that box, so you also didn't check out. Maybe it's that you need to stay tuned in. And instead of checking out, well, I already checked that box, instead you need to listen to it all over again. And let it be preached to you all over again so that you recall God had to reach to save you. And the fact that God chooses to save anybody is His grace. And then you thank God. I can't believe you allowed me to be a part of your family. I can't believe the reach you went through for me. Because if I was in this spot now, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have gone after you, God. But He did. And He calls you a son and a daughter. And He does that at great cost. Maybe it's just remembering that. Maybe it's it's taking it from your family. What do you need to do? Because if you don't, if we don't, when we forget God's faithfulness, we fail in the faithfulness to God. So Father, help us with that. Because we are people who forget and we know that all too well. And so God, would you, would you help us to find things and intentionally do things that will stir up our affections for you, that will remind us and help us to recall the way you have pursued us and acted in your grace and your love and and justice and the cost that it took that bring all of that to mind for us. And let it then fuel the way we live. Let us live differently. Let us not be guilty of becoming apathetic. Let us not be people who just sit in church on a Sunday and never think about you again until the next time we're in church. But God, find things in our lives and point us to you that we might continually go deeper in our love for you. And let that flow out of our love. So that you will be glorified. You get all the attention. You get all the praise. And all that we do is for this day. Well, hey, glad that you were here this morning. If you're able, please stand and we'll dismiss. If you are visiting for the first time, if you've got a few minutes, I'd love to say hello. After the service, exit these doors, hang a right. I'll meet you down by the couches there if you've got a second there. Your God is so good. He doesn't forget. He doesn't forget you. He knows you. He loves you. He's faithful. So go out of here and live faithfully. And don't forget. And do that in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll see you guys next week.